0: and that he's going to be committed to David out of his commitment to God. And that would have looked very unusual indeed in the eyes of the world because conventional wisdom would have said, look after number one and get rid of that rival. Father, thank you for the believers whose example you've given us in this part of your word tonight. Please use them to spur us to live for you as they did. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do take a seat. James Dobson is a writer on marriage and the family, and in one of his books he quotes the letter written by his father to his mother when they were engaged. It says this, I want you to understand and be fully aware of my feelings concerning the marriage covenant that we are about to enter. I have been taught in harmony with the word of God that the marriage vows are inviolable, and by entering into them I am binding myself absolutely and for life. The idea of estrangement from you through divorce for any reason at all will never be permitted to enter my thinking. I'm not naive in this. On the contrary, I'm fully aware of the possibility, unlikely as it now seems, that mutual incompatibility or other unforeseen circumstances could result in extreme mental suffering. If such becomes the case, I am resolved to accept that as a consequence of the commitment that I am now making and to bear it, if necessary, to the end of our lives. And it's not surprising they had a strong marriage with that attitude. And summing up that attitude I'd say it was costly commitment out of commitment to God. In other words, commitment that says, I will stay committed whatever and not just in order to be true to myself but in order to be true to God. And costly commitment out of commitment to God is exactly what you get to learn from tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 20, only its commitment not between a man and a woman in marriage, but between a man and a man in friendship. So would you turn in the Bibles to page 241, back to page 241 uh, to begin with, and that's 1 Samuel chapter 18, just to recap from last time. So, page 241, 1 Samuel, chapter 18. Let me remind you what is going on here. There are three main human characters, and they are Saul, David and Jonathan. Saul was the first king of Israel, and God had just rejected him as king because of his disobedience. God has then sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David as the next king, as king-in-waiting. That was done privately. So, at first, only David and Samuel were aware that that was the plan. But after David's win over Goliath, he joined Saul's royal circle, and it became increasingly clear that he, David, was king material. Saul wanted to cling on to his kingdom, and so he started trying to kill David. And thirdly, caught in the crossfire is Saul's son, Jonathan, who has become not just a committed friend to David, but committed to seeing David become king. So let's look at chapter 18 and verse 1 to remind ourselves where that commitment began. Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and wouldn't let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, some people who want to find biblical uh, approval for homosexual relationships have read homosexuality into that. In fact, there is a book entitled Jonathan Loved David Homosexuality in Bible Times. And it is a sad example of twisting the Bible to say what you want it to say. Because, for example, look down to verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David, Same word, for he went out and came in before them, which was a figure of speech for leading their army successfully. So they loved him, not in any sexual way, but in exactly the same way as the average Man United fan loves Sir Alex. Or in exactly the same way that our celebrations of David's forty years here were an expression of our love for him. The problem is that today people cannot hear the word love without thinking sex, whereas in those days they used the word to describe relationships that were anything but sexual and intimate. For example, one treaty written by the king of Assyria for people whose country he had invaded said, you must love him, that is the king of Assyria, as yourself. In other words, be his loyal ally, nothing sexual about it at all. So back to David and Jonathan, there is nothing sexual about this language of love. They were certainly friends, but there's actually a bigger dimension to it than friendship, because look down to chapter 18, verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armour and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And as I said last time on this, all of that kit was the uniform of the crown prince, of the Prince Charles of the day, and by doing what he did, Jonathan was saying, I am renouncing my claim to the throne because I recognize this guy, David, as the one who should be next king. Maybe later, David confided in Jonathan that Samuel had anointed him as next king, but at this stage, I'm assuming Jonathan did what he did simply because he recognized David's unique commitment to God and that his leadership flowed out of that and that he was the man for the job. So back to verse 3 it says then Jonathan made a covenant with David. A covenant is a relationship based on solemn promises. So a marriage is a covenant. And Jonathan isn't simply saying here, um, look, I'll be your best friend. This is not just kind of school playground stuff. He's saying I will be your ally and I will be your subject because I recognize you as the next king and I am committed to seeing you become The next king. So with that background, um, turn over the page to chapter 20. Last time I said, um, one trick for getting at the point of an Old Testament passage is to ask the question, what is God doing here? Because in the Bible, he is always the main character. Last time we saw that in this bit of 1 Samuel, God is in the process of making David king, and nothing can stop that, certainly not Saul. And we saw how God protected David from Saul, not least through Jonathan. And that theme carries on into this chapter. I want to come at it with the other question that it's good to ask an Old Testament narrative, which is what can we learn from the believers here? And I think there are two main things we can learn from them. The first is this unusual commitment out of commitment to God. Unusual commitment out of commitment to God. At the end of chapter 19, David hides from Saul in a place called Naoth. Saul finds out and comes after him. So chapter 20 verse 1, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, who is now the only ally who can help him, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so, which is pretty naive. However, David is far more head-screwed on, verse 3. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that i found favour in your eyes. And he thinks, Don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do for you to help you. So David hatches this plan which will show whether Saul might be reasoned with or if he is intent on killing him. Verse 5 David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, when he was required to be at this special official feast. And I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, say, David earnestly asks leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant, but if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. So that's the plan. And then David says in verse 8, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? That shows that David knows that, humanly speaking, Jonathan is his biggest threat because he's confided in Jonathan. Jonathan knows exactly where to find him and could, humanly speaking, bring him in anytime he wanted. And humanly speaking, that would be the usual thing for a crown prince to do to his rival because conventional wisdom said you look after number one and you get rid of your rival. So David knows the score, humanly speaking, which is why he appeals in verse 8 to the fact that You have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord. Which means a covenant that is made consciously before God. So yes, on the horizontal level, it is a commitment to another person. But over and above that, on the vertical level, it is a commitment to God to keep that commitment to the other person. It's like the words in the uh, marriage service. I still remember standing there with Jonathan saying to Tess and I, The vows you are about to make are to be made in the presence of God, who is judge of all and knows the secrets of our hearts. And afterwards, how he said to us, "You know, In the presence of God and of this congregation, Ian and Tess have made their vows. So David isn't just appealing to Jonathan's friendship Over and above that, he's appealing to Jonathan's faithfulness to God. He's saying, you've promised to be my ally and my subject and to see me become king. And you've promised that because you believe it is God's will. And you've promised that before God. And so I'm appealing to you to be faithful to me out of faithfulness to God. That's what's going on here. So verse 9, and Jonathan said, far be it from you. In other, in other words, don't even think I would turn you in. Skip to verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I've sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I don't disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety." So he says he knows the Lord is the witness of his promises and the Lord is the judge of how he keeps those promises and that he's going to be committed to David out of his commitment to God. And that would have looked very unusual indeed in the eyes of the world because conventional wisdom would have said, look after number one and get rid of that rival. But Jonathan is so clear that it's God's will that David becomes king, that he then thinks forward to when it's happened and says, verse 14, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast or covenant love of the Lord that I may not die. In other words, show me the kind of covenant commitment that the Lord shows us. Read on, verse 15. And do not cut off your steadfast or covenant love from my house, in other words, family, forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house or family of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan knows that in the future, the boot is going to be on the other foot and that David will then be his greatest threat, humanly speaking, because in those days, the usual thing for a king from a new family to do, having become king, was to wipe out the family of the old, the royal, the old royal family to get rid of any potential rivals. Again, conventional wisdom would have said to David, look after number one and get rid of that rival. But David also is willing to promise this unusual commitment to Jonathan out of his commitment to God. So the first thing to learn from David and Jonathan is this unusual commitment out of commitment to God. Thinking of the obvious covenant example of marriage, that is what the Lord wants to see in our marriages – if we are married or if we become married in the future. And that's what he wants the world to see in them – to his glory. Sadly, the kind of commitment which James Dobson's father wrote about in that letter is becoming more unusual in our culture. But that does give us the opportunity, by God's grace, to stand out more and glorify him with this kind of unusual commitment. Let me quote a bit more of Dobson Sr.'s letter to his fiancée. He says, I've loved you as a sweetheart, and I will continue to love you as a wife, but over and above that, I will love you with a Christian love." By which he means, I'm going to love you above all because I know it is the Lord Jesus Christ's will that I love you. I remember talking to a Christian woman um, who didn't like that thought at all. She said, I want to be loved for my own sake. And I would hope that any husband would say he loved his wife for her own sake. But a Christian husband or wife should also say I'm going to love you out of my commitment to the Lord. See whatever the attraction and chemistry between husband and wife, whatever the commitment to be true to yourself in the promises that you have made, that is what gives marriage its ultimate strength. Because what will strengthen our commitment when the other one becomes less lovely? or is behaving unlovably, so that you don't feel like loving them, and conventional tit-for-tat wisdom says, look after number one, and only love them insofar as they love you. What if being true to yourself is not strengthening enough? What if looking after number one, possibly even by getting out, becomes increasingly preferable? After all, I've heard plenty of people say they've left their spouses precisely in order to be true to themselves and possibly true to a new love. That's why it matters that a Christian husband or wife are saying, I'm going to love you above all out of my commitment to the Lord. So during my engagement to Tess, I remember uh, asking my last vicar, uh, Mark Ashton, on the phone, Mark, how do you know it's going to work? And he very shrewdly said, Ultimately, Ian, Christ is the only hope for your marriage, as you and Tess commit yourself to doing his will by his grace. But it's not just in marriage that we should be showing unusual commitment out of commitment to God. I think of brothers and sisters here who, for example, have given up work to nurse elderly parents all the way to their deaths, out of commitment to the Lord's will that we honor our Father and mother. I think of other brothers and sisters here um, who've adopted children or all but adopted one of the elderly members of our church family out of commitment to the Lord's concern for the orphan and widow, to use Bible speak. And I think of you know, all of you who run uh, or who belong to groups here. And so many examples I see of costly involvement in one another's needs, especially when things get difficult or demanding out of commitment to the Lord's command that we love one another as he's loved us, and so on. All those commitments when the world and conventional wisdom would say, look, why do more? Why not just look after number one, but when believers can show unusual commitment out of commitment to God? The other thing we can learn from David and Jonathan is this, accepting the cost of identifying with God's kingdom. Accepting the cost of identifying with God's kingdom. Back to 1 Samuel 20. In verses 5 to 7, David hatches this plan to show whether Saul is intent on killing him. He's going to miss this feast so that Jonathan can see Saul's reaction. And now, if you go on to verses 18 to 24, Jonathan hatches a plan for how to tell David what Saul's reaction is. He tells David to hide in a field by a stone heap. You see, if if mobile phones had been around uh, at this stage, the whole story would have been far less fun. Um, Skip to verse 20. And he says, Look, I will shoot three arrows to the side of the stone heap as though I shot at a mark, out doing a bit of target practice. And behold, I will send the boy, his servant boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you're to come, for as the Lord lives, it's safe for you and there's no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. Now why this cloak and dagger stuff? Well because Jonathan has twigged, finally, that if his father is intent on killing David and finds out that he's helping David, then his life is going to be on the line too. And so the cloak and dagger, or bow and arrow stuff, is in order that he can communicate to David without anyone realising. So this feast begins. David's missing. Saul says, where is he? Jonathan says he's gone home to Bethlehem because I gave him permission. Over the page to verse 30, the blue touch paper is lit. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. In other words, you rebel. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? In other words, she now realizes she gave birth to a traitor. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. In other words, look, you idiot. Can you not see that David has got to be killed? Don't you want the kingdom? To which Jonathan's answer inexplicably to his father, is no and no, respectively. Because he recognizes that David is God's chosen king, and that God's kingdom is the only one with a future, it's the only one worth investing in. So he's identified himself with that kingdom, and now he faces the cost, verse 32. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put put David to death. And he knew that identifying with David now put him firmly in the firing line. And in the Bible, remember, King David and his kingdom foreshadows King Jesus and his kingdom. So this foreshadows the fact that if we identify with Jesus and his kingdom in a world which does not want him to be king, it will put us in the firing line as well. And maybe Jonathan was naive to begin with about how anti-David his father was or would get. But I suspect most Christians are naive to begin with. I was about the fact, as the Lord Jesus said, that whoever is not with me is against me. I guess Jonathan began to grasp that as this spear came his way and we begin to grasp that as people are offended by the gospel. Maybe you started grasping that in the response of someone who came to Christianity explored tasters with you. We begin to grasp it as people are antagonistic to Christian standards or unsympathetic to conscientious stands in public life and so on. And as with Jonathan, hardest of all that can come from your own family. So Jonathan goes out to where David is hiding. They do the bow and arrow routine. But maybe thinking this could be their last meeting, Jonathan sends his servant boy back to the city and risks face-to-face talk. Look down to verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another, which was culturally normal for men then, You know, just like in France today. You know, absolutely fine for the men. And they wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. They did meet once more in 1 Samuel 23, briefly. But Jonathan did not live to see David become king. He died in a battle at the end of 1 Samuel, and in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David writes this in an obituary. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. By which again, he does not mean there was anything sexual about it, he just means that Even compared with the typically far deeper commitment of a woman in a marriage, Jonathan's commitment to him was even more remarkable. That's why you can't help uh, seeing lessons for marriage in this chapter. But primarily, it's a lesson in friendship. It's a reminder that whether married, as David and Jonathan both were, or single, Christian men need to be cultivating godly friendships with Christian men and Christian women likewise with Christian women. We need that. And above all, it's a reminder that you don't have to have sexual relationship, in other words, be married, in order to find friendship and commitment. And in a culture where many are finding sex, but few are finding friendship and Commitment. We need to believe that. We need to model that. We need to foster that amongst this congregation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, especially as we come to take communion. A bit later that your son is the supreme example of the covenant commitment that these two men showed thank you that he shed his blood to secure the forgiveness of the new covenant between us and you and we pray that by your spirit you would impress his commitment to us on our hearts so that our commitments reflect his better And we pray that by your Spirit you would keep us conscious that all our commitments are ultimately commitments before you and to you as well. And that you would work in us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.